What's up, guys? Welcome to another episode of the True Crime Society podcast with Stephanie and Olivia. It is October 24th today, Saturday. I'm not going to say the time in Australia because it hurts Olivia's feelings. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> Olivia, what's the date in Australia? Sunday the 25th at just over 9 a.m. So I'm having a coffee. I know you said you were having a beer, so yep, <laughs> I wish I was having a beer. <laughs> it's 6 p.m. here. Um, I feel like a lot of people don't realize that like we're not together. And not only are we not together, we're on different sides of the world she is yeah. a day ahead of me and bright and early in the morning and it is 6 p.m on saturday for me and i'm having a beer yeah we're gonna work hard to sync our schedules to times that we can both do <laughs> yeah so it gets tough sometimes <laughs> but you know we make it work for our fans <laughs> <laughs> our five fans <laughs> um but anyways this is gonna be our halloween episode spooky because this will come out a few days before halloween and this episode's gonna be all about murder houses which are maybe haunted houses so you could be the judge of that but for another thing that's different about us is for me i'm in new york but for most of us in the united states all of us in the united states halloween is in the fall but especially where i live it's pretty cold by this time of year and in australia it's summer so they have a halloween summer oh yeah it's spring spring so but where i live it gets pretty hot like we have very, very hot summers. So by the end of October, it's generally, like saying that now it's pouring rain and cold, but generally <laughs> it gets pretty hot. So we were just talking off air, I guess, about the differences between Halloween here. And Halloween really isn't a thing here as such. Like it is, people do do it, but it's not widely, um, I don't know, celebrated the right word, widely acknowledged. Yeah. Um, when I was growing up, Halloween, we never, ever, ever did anything. But now that I've got some, you know, little kids, we there's one street in our neighbourhood that does it. So, you know, hundreds and hundreds of people just go to this one street. That's walk funny. up and down, <laughs> get lollies and that's about it. And, you know, I would say maybe 90% of people in the area don't participate. That's so, so crazy. Just, yeah, it's just like, it, you know, it does get a little bit bigger each year, but like in the supermarket, for example, there's one little row of Halloween decorations <laughs> and it's mainly all Christmas stuff already here. So it's a very minor thing here. Christmas stuff has been out here for ages because we also don't have Thanksgiving. So really, essentially, right, there's nothing else true. happening. <laughs> it's just Boring. Christmas, that's it. Yeah, you I know. need Halloween at least. <laughs> <laughs> to break it up. But I don't know what will happen this year here with Halloween either because of COVID. So the government have said that you can do it, but you should do things like, you know, only let four kids on your property at once and I don't know how they're going to police it but yeah still kind of up in the air as if we'll do it I don't think we will with our kids this year I think we'll just do some type of lolly hunt at home with maybe a few friends or something but yeah here I think it's just like up to people's own discretion but they're saying to be careful and to not really do it yeah um I don't know how you could police it or how you could even try to control it um yeah it's weird to think um, back because Halloween's been canceled like twice for me in probably like I'd say my lifetime, but I feel like in the more recent future. Once was because we had an October snowstorm and since the leaves are still on the trees, it knocked out the power everywhere. Like we didn't have power for a week and oh it was gosh. so bad. There's like power lines everywhere. So it was just like an announcement from like the government of New York being like <laughs> Halloween's canceled. <laughs> but a lot of places did like the mall would let kids trick or treat there and stuff 
it's just, yeah, it's crazy, crazy times. <laughs> Things are getting a little bit back to normal here, corona well, you know, normal corona-wise, but um, we have been pretty steady with some days we have zero cases. I think we had 12 days straight of zero cases or something, and they've it's been in the, you know, under 10 cases a day. So they've started to um, loosen restrictions. And I know in another state last night they had a football grand final with, I think, like 40,000 people, which is the first time all year. Wow. that they've been able to have that many people. So, um, you know, it is getting back to normal, but it's just still a bit, you know, I don't know, what do you do? Yeah, we're still a bit unknown. on a mild lockdown here. Like you can do a lot of things, but a lot of things are still closed. But anyways, that's our usual bullshit chat that everyone loves. <laughs> <laughs> but we did want to talk about, um, we've had some terrible news this week i don't know Mm. if it's because our group is our facebook group is getting bigger or if it's just a rough year i feel like it was a um exceptionally bad week like obviously when you've got 200 people let's just say or you know 190,000 people in a group there's always going to be some bad things happening to some of those people like it's such a big enough pool that it's inevitable really but this week we found out that three of our group members passed away um, one was from suicide, which is very sad. I won't name her because obviously, you know, a privacy concern, but she was in our group and we found out that she did take her own life, which is very sad. And then the other two were, one was definitely a murder and I'm pretty sure the second one was also a murder. Um, so the first one that I'll just quickly speak about, we had a member called Savannah Pascal uh, or Pascal. I think it's Pascal based on the news reports that I've seen, but she joined our group in July 2019 um she was in texas so basically what happened this week was that she was murdered by her husband trent she was 30 he's 48 he um, ambushed her and killed her and then he posted a video on his youtube where he apologized to his young children and he said things like he told his daughter that he wanted her to know that he loved her and all this type of thing so this is like it sounds like it's a domestic violence situation savannah was getting out of the shower of the master bedroom's bathroom where he basically ambushed her and shot her, shot her twice in the abdomen. Terrible. There's an interview I saw on People from Savannah's mother and her husband Trent and it said, Trent stated that he was going to shoot both her and Savannah. Savannah's mother shut the bathroom door of Trent and started running out towards the front of the house. Oh, her mum was there? Yeah, so it sounds like her mum saw it. It says, Uh. um, as she was running, Savannah's mother tripped more than once. She heard gunshots and she kept running to go to the neighbour's house. So it's, you know, and then he fled. He was confronted by police eventually where they shot him. But fortunately or unfortunately, he survived. Um, He's in as far as the last I've heard is that he's in a critical but stable condition. So, you know, the video was on his YouTube. It's been taken down. We're going to try and see if we can get a copy of it anyway so that you guys can hear a little bit of what he said. But it uh, went for four minutes and it says, the video ends suddenly when he looks to his left, sees someone and rushes into a darkened room. I love you, Mackenzie Pascal. I'm so sorry that I've done this. I want you to know that you mean everything to me. And William, I love you too. I love you so much. I love you like you're my own. I didn't choose this. Your mom chose this. She's been cheating on me for a long time. I have audio of her talking to other guys. 
I didn't do nothing wrong to her. When we first got together, I told her, you're too young for me. There's an 18 year old difference in her age. And I knew she was kind of too young, but I didn't, she's been playing me for a full. I told her not to mess with me, not to mess with my emotions. Don't play with me. I put everything into this relationship. I have done nothing to your mom. I've never hit her. I've never hurt her. I've never called her names. A couple of times when I got really mad, I would I would say a bad word or something, but I've done everything I can. I haven't done anything wrong. I'm like, why me? My hair's a mess and I look horrible. Oh, sorry. Take these off. As far as, as of today, he hasn't faced any charges. Um, hopefully he will yeah, because he's a real jerk. And even we had things like um, someone who knew Savannah came onto the page and into the group and asked if anyone was still friends with her on Facebook because right before he killed her, he went and unfriended everybody so that they didn't have access to her photos and her all her private Facebook memories. So they were asking if anyone was still her friend to let them know so they could get access to those things. Yeah, that made me really sad for them. It's awful. Yeah. Just like on top of everything, you're not even going to yeah. let them have access to her photos and yeah. memories. Her memories. So, so that Yeah, I know. It's terrible. It's just um, what can you even say in a situation like this? Like she was beautiful. She had her whole life ahead of her. And then this disgusting jerk just took it away. And the other one that is also terrible is we had a um, very active member in our group, Tiffany Booth. Tiffany has been a member for years. I think he said that she might have all, um, even joined us in the Liberty German and Abigail Williams group, which was our first ever one. So that was years and years ago. Yeah, and she commented a lot like in yeah. True Crime Society. Like It's hard for me to take note of people's names and who everyone is unless they're very active just because our group is so big at this point. But she was participating enough that I knew who she was. And when I saw her commenting, I was like, oh, girl, there's Tiffany. Like, here she is commenting. <laughs> she was always happy, funny. It just seemed like she was having a good time, like, being in the group. So that's why it was just crazy. Because, like, I know we didn't know her, but I felt like we, we knew did her. Yeah. And I know that one of the cases that she was really active on just recently was the case of missing soldier from Fort Hood, Gregory Weddle. Um, and that that was only from August. So, you know, this was a really recent she was a really recently contributing member. But Nikki, I think it was, found out a few days ago or maybe a week ago now that Tiffany and her boyfriend Eduardo Clemente, I think is how you say his name, were missing. Um, the police, Las Vegas police released a missing persons report saying that they had both been last seen on the, uh, October the 2nd in Las Vegas and that they had, their car was also missing. So her family put together a Facebook page to try and help find her. And, like, it was a bit, it was, well, it was very shady. So we learnt that, you know, the last few days in September, someone deleted the security footage from her condo, um, that, you know, they'd still been kind of chatting to people via text messages and other It seemed chat. like they went missing on purpose initially. Yes, absolutely. And then also, um, so about a week or, you know, 10 days after they were last seen, they found Tiffany's car about an hour, I think, from their property with the license plate removed and there was torn clothes around the car. And, you know, everyone was thinking, oh my gosh, what's happened? 
you know, and people were considering that maybe she'd staged her disappearance for whatever reason, you know, obviously there's going to be speculation when you have no answers. But sadly, October 21, the news started to emerge that they'd found a body in Indian Springs, Nevada. Um, One of Tiffany's neighbours came out straight away and said it was Tiffany and then there was kind of a bit of a backtrack where they said no, they weren't sure, but her family were thanking people for their condolences and things like that. But um, just yesterday they did confirm that the body is Tiffany, unfortunately. They haven't said how she died. They just said that it was in very poor condition, so that's why it took a little while for them to identify. Um, As far as we know, Eduardo is still missing. I don't, uh, you know, obviously everyone's speculating now that he had something to do with her death. I suspect that probably is right because why else would the security footage be deleted? Mm -hmm. And someone, remember when her mom was looking for her, maybe at this point something had happened already, but I think she was texting Tiffany and then Tiffany texted back that they were taking a day trip. So was that, was she like already dead at that point? Was it him texting the mom? And they know that he had ties. I think I might have this a little bit wrong, but I'm pretty sure that his stepfather or some member of his family lives in near Indian Springs, which is where Tiffany was found. Hmm. Um, and the other thing that's kind of interesting about this case is that there was a bank robbery in is it Placer County, I think is how you say it, and that there's you know surveillance footage of the robber and it looks so so similar to Eduardo. This was on October 13. It says approximately 12:30 p.m. the man in the below footage entered the Bank of the West in Kings Beach and demanded money. He said he had a gun and threatened to tell her and so he got money and he took off. So this could all tie in. It looks like him the, the robber kind of has a bandana on the lower half of his face. There's photos on of Eduardo on his Facebook where he wears a similar type of you know bandana mask. Yeah, kind of a unique eye eyebrow area like it's kind of prominent I guess you'd say or his eyebrows are just flat I don't know but something about it just comparing the eyebrows and eye area of the two people he looked like the same person to me and I've got the uh, place the county sheriff's post up now and actually like people are actually talking about it on there as if it is Eduardo and someone's just they're saying yep it's the hairline is the same I bet it's him yeah that too so as far as we know we don't know where Eduardo is. Hopefully the police know. Um, it's just very, very sad. Tiffany was very sweet. She had moved in, I know, to live with her mother because her mother had a illness. So she was kind of caring for her mother at the time. If you haven't heard the story before and you live in that area, go look it up. Look at pictures of this guy and keep yeah. an eye out for him because yeah. Tiffany was one of us. Like, what the hell? Yeah. So hopefully we can do our part and get the word out a little bit more. I guess if any group, we might try and organize something in the group, maybe for some type of domestic violence charity or something like that in case people want to donate on behalf of Tiffany and Savannah. And I know that in the past too, we've also had another member. This was um, just after Christmas last year. Her name was Shirley Brewer and she was murdered by her husband in a murder-suicide. So um, I guess when you have such a big pool of women. Who are mostly victims of crimes. Yeah. Especially, I guess, murder suicides and domestic violence crimes. So it's sadly bound to happen. So maybe we'll look at something like that ongoing that we can do. Yeah. It would be nice to make a donation in their names. Yeah. It would feel good to do. Yeah. So, like I said, this is our Halloween episode. So we're going to do it about some houses where murders happen that are spooky, where maybe you wouldn't want to live, maybe you would, depending on the type of person. They're all said to be haunted in some way, some more than others. So we're going to start at the Villisca Axe Murders House, which is in Villisca, Iowa. (music) 
On June 10, 1912, long before the rise of serial killers and mass murderers, the small Midwestern town of Villisca, Iowa, was left shaken when two adults and six children were found brutally murdered in their beds. So like I said, this was 1912, long time ago, where murders like this probably weren't pretty common. So this became known as the Villisca Axe Murders, and it occurred between the evening of June 10th and June 11th, when six members of the Moore family and two of their children's friends were bludgeoned to death. So the victims included Josiah Moore, who was 43, Sarah Montgomery Moore, who was 39, Herman Moore, who was 11, Catherine Moore, who was 9, Boyd Moore, who was 7, Paul Moore, who was 5, and then the two friends were Ina Stillinger, who was 8, and Lena Stillinger, who was 12. Ina and Lena were sleeping over after they had a church event earlier that day, and they left with the Moores family because they were all friends, had a sleepover. So it was found that each of them had their skulls crushed with an axe that belonged to Josiah, and it was found in the bedroom with them. Their bodies were discovered by Josiah's brother, Ross Moore, after their neighbor noticed the family hadn't made an appearance all morning. And it said that they're usually up pretty early, so after a few hours, the family, the neighbors were pretty concerned. So they called his brother, asked him to do a check on them. So doctors believe that the murders took place between midnight and 5 a.m., they found two cigarette butts in the attic, which suggested that the killer or killers were waiting there until everyone was asleep. The killing spree began in the master bedroom where Josiah and Sarah were sleeping. Josiah received more blows than anyone else, so many that his eyes were missing. The killer or killers used the blade of the axe on Josiah, and everyone else got the other end of the axe, the blunt end. So for some reason, they used the sharp end on him. Sounds like it might have been a bit more personal for him like you know obviously yeah but it sounds like that's you know he got the book obviously yeah yeah sounds like it to me yeah so from the master bedroom they continued to the children's rooms and bludgeoned them in the same manner before returning to the master bedroom to inflict more damage on mr and mrs moore once they were satisfied they moved downstairs to the guest bedroom where ina and lena stillinger were sleeping so investigators believe that all the victims were asleep when they were murdered except for Lena Stillinger because she had defensive wounds and was lying across her bed. Her nightgown was pushed up to her waist and her undergarments were missing, leading law enforcement to speculate that the killers may have sexually assaulted her or attempted to. As brutal as this murder was, there were a few strange things investigators took note of. And I know this is obvious, but, you know, sometimes you're just listening along, don't really think about it. Remember, this is 1912. Like, forensic science isn't really a thing at this time. So it's not like they could do DNA, fingerprints, not a lot of options they had. But anyway, so they noticed a few weird things. Along with the axe, they found a four-pound slab of bacon on the floor of the guest bedroom where the Stillinger girls were killed. The killers also cooked a plate of food that was then left untouched in the kitchen. And every single mirror in the house was covered by blankets or clothing. Because, you know, it must be hard to watch yourself murder a whole family. A lengthy investigation resulted in several suspects, one who was even taken to trial twice. But due to the lack of forensic evidence, the case still remains unsolved today. It's so strange. Like, you think it's, if that happened today, it would be massive news. Like, it would be wild. And mm-hmm. Just like with the, I don't know, maybe the bacon had some type of. So weird. And I also read another thing that said that there was a a shoe full of blood, like just random things like this. So I just can't believe that no one else in the family heard all this happening because obviously 
it sounds like they killed them one by one. Especially if the dad and the dad, the dad and mom. <laughs> yeah. The parents are in the same room together. So you'd think if they were bludgeoning. You'd think you'd hear someone being. That the mom you know, would wake up. Yeah. Or unless, you know, e- either one of them would have woken up. You would have thought it's just so. I, I just can't comprehend how this actually ever happened. It's weird. It almost seems like just from like the bacon and the making of food and the cigarette butts, it almost seems like a weird thrill kill. Yeah, like some type of weird. But also seems um, personal. Yeah, weird significance. Like, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I would love to know more about this bacon. What, what was the significance of that? That's so strange. What's crazy is like whoever did it is for sure dead. So I guess that's just. Yeah, yeah. So I guess it'll probably never be solved because it's not like they have forensic evidence really, which is sad. I wonder if they're even still looking into it. Probably not. I think they might have. Well, why would you, like, you know, why essentially would you bother? Because nothing's going to happen to whoever did it now. They just can't prove it. So, but there, um, there's pictures of the house online and everything. But in terms of is it haunted? Is it not? So the ghost situation there. Paranormal investigators have proclaimed that the Velisca Axe murder house is one of the most haunted places in America. Visitors regularly report emotional, physical, and supernatural disturbances during their overnight visits. So a woman named Martha Lynn bought the house in 1994. It was up to date, a 1994 house, but she ended up turning it into more like a tourist attraction based on the murders and restored it to its 1912 condition. So she stripped it of electricity, plumbing, and made the decor similar to what it was and started basically renting the place out for ghost hunting <laughs> yeah but wanted house sleepers. yes <laughs> in terms of ghost hunters and people who come there martha said that they play with the children they hear voices they get pictures of anomalies and she has a notebook from the last two years full of overnight experiences that people had very few people go away without experiencing something so another strange thing that happened um, at this house was on november 7th 2014 an amateur paranormal investigator named robert lauren was staying at the home with his mother and stepfather and i think some friends were there too when he stabbed himself in the chest around 1 a.m he was airlifted to the hospital where he remained in intensive care for several days and i guess before because you know they're doing like a paranormal investigation so before he ended up stabbing himself uh, they had two-way radios and he radioed to his friends or whoever for help like asking for help and then they found him stabbed but the montgomery county sheriff's office investigated the incident and they quickly determined that the stabbing was self-inflicted and it remains undetermined what actually caused him to stab himself but it was revealed later that he did suffer some frontal lobe damage prior to this, believed to be of caused by having mini strokes, which caused him to have a few mental breakdowns, I guess you would call them, or just a few similar incidents. Yeah. So is it that? Is it ghosts? Who knows? But the house was also featured on shows like Ghost Adventures, Scariest Places on Earth, Kindred Spirits, Most Terrifying Places in America, and was part of a 2016 horror movie called The Axe Murders of Velisca. So like I said before, the woman who owns the house now turned it into like a tourist attraction. So if you're interested in um, spending the night with some possibly malicious spirits, it's only going to cost you $428 for one night. (laughs) One night of terror. You can um, look on TripAdvisor too and they've got the reviews of the house. Someone wrote the most recent one, which I'm assuming is because of COVID. Maybe they've slowed down this year, but <laughs> this is from last year. This was a very cool place. The guide tells you just enough, but leaves the rest up to you. You can make your own assumptions as you see fit. I definitely experienced a couple out of the ordinary things. 
if you are into paranormal, definitely swing swing through it if you're in the area. The booking information on the website for the house, it says overnights and tour pricing. Oh, wow. They were already booking for 2020 when I did this research last year. <laughs> booking for 2020 will start October 21st after 8 a.m. Like there's even a, a launch time. People must be like lining up, setting their alarms, getting That's ready crazy. for it. <laughs> Daytime tours will end November 3rd for the 2019 season or resume March 2020. Overnights are year round. During busy times, some day tours may be subject to a time limit. Overnights are $428 for groups from one to six people, $75 each additional person, $200 non-refundable deposit to be paid when you book the date. The deposit goes towards the full amount due. Don't book until you can pay the deposit. Day tour season will be from March 30th, 2019. Just show up at the house Tuesday through Sunday between 1 and 3.30. Cash only for tours. We're closed on Mondays. <laughs> Crazy how busy it must be. <laughs> I was just reading more like questions about staying there and someone wrote, will I run the risk of being axed to death in this house? If yes, I may be interested. (laughs) (laughs) No, I'll pass. (laughs) Did anyone answer the question? Yeah, then someone wrote and it says she's a local guide. It says people do approach the house when people stay, so there is a possibility. (laughs) (laughs) If you're lucky. Yeah. And someone wrote, could you be a little bit more insensitive? (laughs) (laughs) sounds like people who say things to us yes (laughs) but that's it for that one so next we're gonna do the los feliz murder mansion in los angeles california so i have followed this house if you can follow a house for a long time (laughs) the photos and things that we'll speak about in a minute are so fascinating to me and it's just i don't know i really am into this one so i'm glad that we're covering it today to start off, we'll go back to 1949. It's December 6 at 4.30 a.m. Dr. Harold Perelson stood over his sleeping wife, Lillian. He had a hammer in his hand and their three children slept in their rooms. He struck Lillian in the head with a hammer and killed her immediately. From there, he went to his eldest daughter, Judy's room. He delivered a similar blow, but the hammer only just grazed her head. She began screaming so loud that the neighbors heard. Judy ran into her mother's room for help, but when she entered, she saw the full horror of what her father had done. With her fractured skull, she bolted from the house screaming, looking for anyone at all who would help her. She banged on neighbors' doors and windows, putting blood all over them, until finally Ross Marshall opened the door and together they called the police. Back at the mansion, the two younger children, Debbie, who was 11, and Joel, who was 13, woke to the sound of their sister's screams. When they saw their father, Harold, he told them, go back to bed and this is a nightmare, before walking away, dripping blood on the floor. After calling the police with Judy, Ross Marshall went to check on the other children. He found Debbie and Joel waiting nervously on the first floor and he climbed the stairs where he then saw Harold. Go on home, Harold told him, according to the coroner's report. Don't bother me. (laughs) (laughs) Harold then went into the bathroom and dug through the drawers where they kept medication. He took apart two capsules of Nambutol, which is a barbiturate, and turned on the tap, mixing the yellow powder with water before drinking it. Nambutol is known as death in a bottle. It's what killed Judy Garland, and it's a favourite of the suicide seekers who are hoping for a quick death. To be sure that he was going to die, Harold also swallowed 31 small white pills, which were believed to be codeine. Police arrived within 15 minutes, but it was too late. At 5.15am, LAPD found the doctor on the floor, his head on a pillow soaked with his daughter's blood and he still had the hammer in his hand. 
By the time the ambulance arrived, he was dead. On the nightstand next to Harold's bed, a copy of Dante's The Divine Comedy lay open to a quote that said, Midway upon the journey of our life, I found myself within a forest of dark, for the straightforward pathway had been lost. Judy was treated for her injuries and Joel and Debbie were unharmed, thankfully. Lillian's family took custody of the kids and a year later, the house was sold to a couple, Emily and Julian Enrique. Even though the house was sold, it remained unhabited and unintouched for the next 50 years because the Enrique family never moved in. When Emily died in 1994, her son Rudy inherited the property and never moved in there either. He told the LA Times in 2009, I don't know that I want to live there or even stay here. Sherry Lewis was the family babysitter. She spoke to our Stacey Butler back in 2010. She says the next year, the Enriquez family bought the house. They never lived there. They visited the place. Lewis says decades later, the Perelson belongings were still in the home. There are no furnishings other than in the living room uh, furniture that belonged to the Perelson family. The former neighborhood house painter describes what he saw. Basically, it's like a crime scene that was frozen in time. You could see sheets on the ground covering things. You saw Christmas wrapping paper. There was a Christmas tree. So during this time, the house did have a few trespassers and um, I guess urban explorers, which is how we kind of got all the photos that are online now. You can see that the house basically remained untouched since the 1950s and the murders. It essentially became a time capsule. Okay, so as this, um, you know, the murders happened just before Christmas, you can see Christmas presents still wrapped with the bows in like a lounge room, it looks like. There were clothes left hanging to dry and private letters and books were laid on the tables. Visitors say that they can't shake the heavy, ominous feeling that surrounds the house. It's a weird story anyway. It just, it's, you know, I guess it's just a series of events that led to this house just sitting dormant for decades. Yeah. If if you haven't seen the pictures, definitely look them up because they're super creepy, but super interesting. Yeah. Like very clear. It's not like, you know, and the house, you know, you would think that if the house was empty for this long, it would be totally trashed by trespassers, but it was generally in okay condition. Dusty, but. Yeah. So you also know that because of when this happened, not all of the items that you can see through the windows could have belonged to the Perelson family. There was a Life magazine from May 9, 1960, and a can of SpaghettiOs, which weren't marketed until 1965. So it just adds to the creepiness of this story. And also the Perelsons were Jewish. So would they have had Christmas presents in the tree in the house? Probably yeah. not. Yeah, but some Jewish so. people celebrate Christmas. Just Yeah. So there was also rumours that another family rented the house, but they weren't told about the murders. They were told apparently, on the anniversary. So they fled the house so quickly that their Christmas presents and the tree were left behind. Sounds kind of like a tall tale to me. But yeah, yeah, I also don't think so. Um, <laughs> if they live there that long, like I know you might want to get out quickly, but I'm sure you could take a day or two to pack up your stuff and get out. No, they had to leave. <laughs> uh, there's a neighbour, Cherie Waterson, or Waterson, said one night a friend of hers tried to explore the mansion in what she described as a Nancy Drew moment. The woman snuck in through a back door but didn't get far before the burglar alarm sounded and then she noticed that her hand was throbbing painfully. She'd been bitten by a black widow spider. There was a red streak going up her arm and she had to go to the doctor. Two nights later, the alarm kept going off at my house on the back door but there was no one there. It was like the ghost was following us. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm, you know, you would never obviously think that maybe the spider's there because the house is abandoned so there's, you know, tons of creepy things around. No, it's because ghosts. (laughs) 
Um, so the Enrique family never sold the home and they had no living family to inherit it. It went up for sale in 2016. It was marketed as a fixer-upper or a development opportunity. It was sold later that year to a couple who had plans to remodel and eventually move into the residence. So it eventually emerged that the buyer for the house was celebrity attorney Gloria Allred's daughter, Lisa Bloom, and Lisa's husband, Braden Pollock. They said at the time that they really wanted the property and that Lisa wasn't at all put off by the dark history. In 2016, the home was sold to civil rights attorney Lisa Bloom and her husband, Braden Pollock. Three years later, the home is back on the market. I spoke to them over the phone. You know, I know there was this awful tragedy one day in the 1950s, but, you know, I, I didn't hold that against the house. The couple tell me they had plans to remodel. The inside was even taken down to the studs. But after pushback from the city to expand, they decided to put it back on the market. And they want people to know most of the stories about the home are urban legends. Most of them are not true. So, for example, there's a picture of a Christmas tree with a presence under it. And it's been there all these years, just like it was the day he was murdered. And it was a Jewish family. Just three years after they bought it, so 2019, they put the house up for sale again for $3.9 million cash or hard money offers only. When they asked Lisa why she changed her mind about moving in, she said that it all just became too hard. She said, after three years of efforts, we gave up. Since we'd been improving at more than 50%, we'd have to bring the whole property up to code, which means tearing down the house and regrading the hills it's on. The property would be perfect for someone who wants a 5,000 square foot gutted house to fix up as they like, or for a developer ready to tear it down, regrade the hill and build the house of their dreams. So there's lots of photos online. You can see that it's been stripped down basically to the bare bones, the stud, the frame. It's gutted basically. So the house, after they put it up in 2019, sat on the market for 16 months. And just this month, October, there's been a buyer for the house. For some reason, a lot of the articles seem to have been taken down. Um, there was a variety article that says the house is in escrow, um, but it's now you get a 404 error when you look at it. So I don't know. There, there, are, there are still articles up. For example, there's this one on Domain, which is actually an Australian website randomly, but it says, <laughs> <laughs> has reportedly found a buyer after 16 months on the market. It says the five-bedroom, four-bathroom house was listed in May for $3.92 million Australian dollars, but after 16 months on the market, the price was slashed to $3.51 million Australian and quickly sold. It doesn't say who sold, who bought it. Um, and then there's also a like a real estate listing that lists all the prices. So it says it was removed in May last year, oh, this year, sorry, $2.5 million. So we don't actually know anything much yet about the buyer. The the articles about it being sold were from October 7, so it's literally only been, you know, a couple of weeks. Hopefully once it all goes through, if it does, or unless it's, you know, something's fallen through, we'll find out a bit more about who the owner is and the new owner and what they plan to do with it. Yeah, the house itself is really cool. I would love, like I have looked at so many, you know, urban exploration pages and posts and I think there's one by Atlas Obscura and they did a really good kind of tour of the house, but oh. it, I would love to have, uh, maybe not so much now, it's all been gutted, but I would have loved to have a look at it before it was all. Yeah, but even just like the structure of it, if someone had the time and money and didn't care about the murders to put it into it, you can make yeah. a really nice house. It could be amazing. Like, so The I, windows I like, are so big. Yeah, and they're kind of arched. and Yeah, there's those like arched, really tall windows. Yeah. 
I think I feel like this is probably one of the most famous murder houses that I can think of. One 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 of the most well known ones, anyway. Yeah, it'd probably be annoying to live there though, because I bet there's will still be a lot of looky lose people who want to. Yeah, people. Yeah, wanna yeah, yeah. That's. I think that's about it for the for that one. We'll give you some updates if they if we find out anyone exciting bought it. <laughs> one thing I just want to add too quickly is that like someone's taken a lot of photos in real detail like there's a light switch photo that's been hand painted it looks like with flowers and it says judy on it so like things like that are just so creepy how you, you know something like that can happen in an, half an hour and you know their whole lives were changed forever the next house we're going to talk about is the soden house which has to do with possibly the black dahlia which i'm assuming everyone's at least heard of <laughs> so i'll start with just some background info on the house and all that just this house if you haven't seen pictures of it or anything this is another you need to look up all of them but this house is insane it literally looks like a mayan temple it has beautiful flowers it was built and designed to be strange and it is but it, it's a very pretty house but it's it looks like something out of indiana jones <laughs> yeah it looks yeah made up it's like a movie set or something like that mm-hmm a lot of this info comes from an article that was by Hadley Mears for Curbed. We'll link that in the blog when we do it, but I just want to give proper credit because basically where I got <laughs> the information. So in the 1920s, retired artist John Soden and his wife Ruth commissioned Lloyd Wright, the son of legendary architect Frank Lloyd Wright, to design a unique showplace for throwing parties. Imagine just designing a house to throw parties. No, wouldn't that be luxurious? Nice. <laughs> not in these times <laughs> so this resulted in this tropical mayan revival style fortress complete with a stage secret rooms a central courtyard and ornamented concrete blocks so the next person to own the home in 1945 was the infamous george hodel who was a prominent gynecologist who catered to many of los angeles's elite hodel moved into the home on franklin avenue with his ex-wife which is weird, and their children. <laughs> Someone's got to take care of the kids, I guess. <laughs> Hodel's son Stephen remembered the magic of growing up in this labyrinth-like home, and a quote from him says, Once through the gate, you turned immediately to your right and continued up a dark passageway, then made another right turn to the front door. It was like entering a cave with secret stone tunnels within which only the initiated could feel comfortable. All others proceeded with great caution, not knowing which way to turn. Growing up in that house, my brothers and I saw it as a place of magic that we are convinced that could have easily greeted the uninvited with pits of fire, poison darts, deadly snakes, or even giant sword-bearing turbaned bodyguards at the door, right out of Arabian Nights. So that that is what the house looks like. Yeah. But like many fairy tales, the home hid some dark secrets. Um, Hodel, he frequently beat his children in the basement of the home, it's been said, and he... Threw a lot of drug-infused hedonistic parties and orgies in his golden bedroom. Um, in 1949, Hodel's teenage daughter, Tamar, ran away from the home. When she was questioned by police, once they found her, she said she left because her home life was too depressing because of all the sex parties at the Franklin house. Tamar accused her father and other adults of raping her during parties at the home. When questioned by police, Hodel gave them an odd explanation, saying he had been delving into the mystery of love and the universe in that the acts of which he was accused were unclear like a dream he said i can't figure out whether someone is hypnotizing me or i'm hypnotizing someone 
So I'm sure the police were thrilled with that answer. <laughs> police raided his home and they found pornography and what was referred to as other questionable items. I couldn't find an elaboration on that, but I'm sure we can imagine. He was then charged with incest and child molestation, but was acquitted after he launched a smear campaign against his daughter. So this entire thing messed up Tamar's life. She ended up pregnant. She had a baby, which she named Fauna. Um, the birth father is unknown, but some people believe her. There's rumors that George Hodel is the father and grandfather. She did send some emails to her brother, Steve, and talks about how all of this affected her. So she, she said that she was planning to write an autobiography about this. And she said, book one will cover my early and quite interesting childhood growing up in the North Beach bohemian sector of beautiful San Francisco, leading to a life-changing experience after going to live in Los Angeles with my father, Dr. George Hodel, my brothers, Michael, Stephen, and Kelly, and my beautiful stepmother, Dorero. A most intense and quite unusual two years followed at the Franklin House prior to my running away from my father in 1949 and being catapulted into newspaper headlines in an infamous incest trial, appearing in LA Confidential and Keyhole magazines, etc., available throughout the U.S., Life as I knew it totally shattered. My father was defended shamelessly by attorney Jerry Geisler and Robert Neeb. A smear campaign was created and I was labeled inaccurately as a liar and a bad seed. At the close of the court trial, my father acquitted and I was transferred to the Los Angeles Juvenile Hall to San Francisco Juvenile Hall as a ward of the court. Suddenly, I'd become the criminal without committing a crime. I was incarcerated for almost one year. This has meant no idea where to place me. In the end, I was released to my mother. Um, and she goes on about how people just knew her as to be a, a bad girl, like a bad kid. Mothers didn't want her hanging out with their sons. She ended up finding out she was pregnant. She asked her mother for help. It says she refused to help, saying she wouldn't help. Not after what she had done to her father. So even the mother was blaming, blaming the girl, which is sad. So after he was acquitted... He sold the Soden house and he left the country. For decades, the house was quiet and George Hodel died in 1999, but that wasn't the end of his story. After Hodel died, his son Steve, who happened to be a retired LAPD detective, was going through some of his father's possessions when he found two pictures of a dark-haired girl that he was convinced was Elizabeth Short, the Black Dahlia, whose unsolved 1947 murder and mutilation had long been stuff of Hollywood legend. This forced Steve to relive a lot of traumatic memories that he'd forgotten that linked his father to many evil deeds. Family members and old friends helped him fill in the gaps, which led him to believe that George Hodel, his father, may have participated in the murder of the Black Dahlia and of an unidentified secretary of his, along with a number of unsolved murders that had taken place in L.A. over the 1940s. Stevens believed that some of these murders had taken place in the basement of the Soden House. This is a clip from Steve when he was on the Dr. Phil show talking about all of this. It's a little long, but it explains everything direct from the source. My father was Dr. George Hodel. He was a famous physician. He was also the prime suspect and the killer of Elizabeth Short, better known as the Black Dahlia. My dad was head of LA County Health Department, handsome, beautiful speaking voice. Brown is the river, golden is the sand. It flows along forever with trees on either hand. In 1949, my mother suddenly places my brothers and I in a military academy. Dad's gone and we don't know what's happening. We would discover that my half-sister Tamar disclosed that our father had had sex with her. Dad was charged with incest and child molestation and was found not guilty. 
after four years in the Navy. I joined LAPD at 21, five years in patrol, 17 in homicide, 300 murder investigations. I served for almost 24 years. My father gets a penthouse in San Francisco. We become very close in that last decade of his life. And then I get that 3 a.m. phone call in 1999 from his wife, June. She says, your father's collapsed and they've just pronounced him dead. Two days later, I'm on the phone with my half-sister, Tamar. She says, the LAPD cops that took me back and forth to the trial said, we think your father killed the Black Dahlia. And I said, well, Tamar, there's no way. I said, well, I, I'm going to be able to establish he had nothing to do with it. But the first thing I discover is LAPD is confident that the killer was a trained, skilled surgeon. Well, my father was a trained, skilled surgeon, but still, I said, there's no way. The next thing I find out is the Black Dahlia killer is sending taunting notes to the police and the press. This one note, full, non-disguised handwriting. It's my father's handwriting. I've identified it, and so have experts. I relocate back to Los Angeles, and I start a full-bore investigation, like I'm trained to do. The circumstantial case was building on Elizabeth Short. We've got the surgeon, we've got the handwriting, then the description of the suspect that was actually seen at the crime scene. A witness was a half block away, and he saw this 1936 dark sedan. Well, Dad at that time was driving a 1936 black Packard sedan. After digging into it and getting all the witness statements from that time period, I submitted in secret to an active head deputy DA. And he came back and he said, based on your investigation, I would file on Elizabeth Short, the Black Dahlia, and I would win it in a jury trial. I get permission to actually examine some secret files and there's a Hodel file. I find out he was the prime suspect all along, and I find out that they tape recorded our residence. His actual words are, supposing I did kill the Black Dahlia. They can't prove it now. They can't talk to my secretary anymore because she's dead. I didn't go to this case. It came to me. This man spread so much horror. The tragedy of it is he could have cured cancer. I mean, he could have done anything. And this dark side, this evil monster within was the power that ruled. So then in 2003, Steve published his allegations in a book he called Black Dahlia Avenger. And an LA Times reporter, Steve Lopez, went through police transcripts related to the Dahlia's murder. And not only did he find proof that Hodel was a prime suspect in the murder, but he also discovered that the Soden house had been bugged by the DA's office after the incest trial. So a transcript that what was recorded at the house appeared to show a woman being assaulted in the basement, followed by the sounds of digging. Later that night, the DA's microphones recorded Hodel on the phone with a friend saying, Supposing I did kill the Black Dahlia. They couldn't prove it now. They can't talk to my secretary anymore. She's dead. Another thing they caught him saying was, They're probably watching me. Do you think we could hire some girls to find out what they're doing? He also said, I'm guessing that this is indistinguishable, which is why it's kind of just random words. It says, I'm in trouble. Black Dahlia. Passport. Police have pictures of me and... I thought I destroyed all of them. In 2013, Steve Hodel claimed that a cadaver dog had indicated that human remains had been or were present in the basement and behind the house, but there was never an excavation of the property done or anything. Another strange story that came to light was when, after George Hodel died decades later, different people owned the house, a transient woman appeared at the back door of the house, and she detailed recollection rec elections of George Hodel's all-red kitchen in his all-gold bedroom and seemed intimately familiar with the layout of the house. The owner at the time said she looked quite old, and I spoke to her, and she said, this house is a place of evil. 
In 2018, Dan Goldfarb, an entrepreneur and former hedge fund analyst from New York, bought the house, which is nearly 5,600 square feet, four bedrooms, for $4.7 million. Seems like a pretty good deal to me based on LA prices. And when you look at the photos of the house, it's pretty... You know, I, I don't. I'm not familiar totally with the area, but like I'm even looking at it on Google Street View now. I think it, that sounds like an okay deal. <laughs> yeah, I feel like I don't know. If the house is like so unique and weird. Like I don't know if that helps it or hurts it. You know, yeah. I would love to stay there, but would I want to live there? I don't know. <laughs> like have a weekend trip, but <laughs> <laughs> he ended up turning the house into basically a place where people have charities, events, art performances. Um, whatever cannabis gatherings are, because I guess he (laughs) he has something to do with a big CBD company. So it's basically just now a photogenic background for events, kind of like a wedding venue. I don't know if they have weddings, but might be an interesting place to get married. (laughs) (laughs) Um, If the story sounds familiar to you, you might have watched the show I Am The Night on TNT, which is about this story with the point of view being from Tamar's daughter, Fauna, which I've never seen. And I didn't really ever hear of it until I was doing the research for this, but I might check it out because I think that sounds interesting. But as far as being haunted, surprisingly, there's not a lot of, it's not like the Axe Murder House where people are like, this place is so haunted, like, and people are going on tours there or things like that. But Ghost Adventures did do an episode there. I just think the real life story, kind of the creepy factor of it all, outweighs any hauntings, I guess. But that's really it for that house too. The house in I Am The Night is probably the best part of the show. <laughs> yeah, they use the real house, I think, right? <laughs> Seems like it. Yeah, so I think they use the real house in that show. But anyways, would you? Would it bother you to live in a murder house? No, I've always said I would absolutely, if the price was right, yeah. I would always, like, I, I wouldn't not buy a house because it's a murder house. Yeah, especially if that gave you, like, a discounted price. I don't think it would bother me. Um, I mean, I don't. Like I said in past episodes, who am I to say if ghosts and stuff are real? I don't know. But if a house really was haunted and tripping me out, then yeah, I probably couldn't stay there. But just the fact that people were murdered there, sure, it would be in the back of my mind. Just be like, oh, that's sad. But it's not like I wouldn't buy a house that I liked because someone was murdered there. I feel like um, it's... Like, in obviously, in a case like this where they have a house like that, it's a very high-profile high crime and, you know, obviously the house is worth millions of dollars, but it's the little houses, you know, the normal size houses where it's a motor house, which is where it really hurts the owners, which I know yeah. you shouldn't laugh, but it's um, like they, they, they had a chance to turn this high-profile one into something that they can use for their own benefit but it's there's a murder house near me and I think when I was growing up I was probably about 10 or something and some guy went on a rampage and killed his whole family and that's pretty rare here we don't often have a lot of murders like that but every time I drive past that house you know a few times a week I still think of that so I think the stigma is hard for you know hard to get rid of for just some of the normal suburban houses where things happen. Like I almost would rather not live in any of the houses we mentioned or any other like high profile murder houses just because of it being high profile and people coming to like look at the house that would creep me out more than the actual murder yeah people just driving past and yeah or people trying to take pictures of your house or like look inside that would weird me out more yeah like the Soden house you can see from the street it's um you know like it looks like a busy road that it's on so it's not like there's big gates where you can't see in or anything like that. So I'm sure they get people driving past all the time, being sticky beaks and having a look. I feel like I remember reading about 
the Los Feliz one that when no one was living there, people would just kind of camp out on the lawn and like have picnics because no one cared. And I know in my when I used to, you know, spend hours looking at that house, um, the neighbors hated it because they're like, we always get, you know, people trespassing and and the alarms going off. Yeah, yeah. So I, I as a neighbor, I would also hate that. Yeah, like I can't even handle living on a main street where I live because I feel like it's loud. Never mind people purposefully coming to look at where I live and like take pictures. Yeah, it wouldn't be very pleasant. But. Let us know what you guys think. Would you live in a house that people were murdered in, a whole family was murdered in? or Have you lived in a house? I want to hear it. Yeah, I want to hear if you have lived in a house where something like that has happened. That's a good one too. Was it haunted? Mm. (laughs) All right, so that's all we've got for this episode. I hope you guys have a great Halloween for those who celebrate it. I know not everyone celebrates it. Apparently, it's not a big thing in Australia, which it should be. (laughs) We can make a petition. Yeah. Make sure before you celebrate to give us a podcast review hopefully four stars or more if you're on our facebook group which you definitely should be because that's where a lot of this information and things like this come from or if you want to talk about the podcast episodes definitely join our facebook group true crime society and as always um all the sources pictures clips everything if you want to check them out will be on our website truecrimesociety.com but like i said have a great halloween have a great week and we'll see you guys next time yeah